render unto Caesars what belongs to Caesar and render unto God the things that belong to God. You know, as Americans, we, we kind of uh, like a certain weird separation of, of faith and, and policy between politics and religion, but it's, it's a kind of a strange thing. So, for instance, most of us really want that the President of the United States, whatever political party they're a part of, we really want them to be the people that at night are praying to God, right? We want that our president would be somebody of humility who at night would take his or her prayers to God. At the same time, most of us would be totally, totally out of our minds afraid if the president got on national television and said, last night God spoke to me in a dream and we're now going to do this as a nation, right? We'd be like, no, 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 that's not how it works. What happens is, is that in our culture, faith is really okay in the home, in the heart, in the interior life, but when it comes to the public sphere, we really expect reason and skill that we want, we want that to, to dominate policy and politics. And you might even say, wow, this seems to go right back to what Jesus said, because Jesus today says, render to Caesar the things of Caesar's, render to God the things of God. And in so doing, he kind of, kind of takes almost a sledgehammer to this ancient world view that anybody who ruled was ruling because God put them there. Jesus seems to be willing to acknowledge that there's at least some separation between what rulers are doing and what God actually wants done. Well, you drive that through 2,000 years of complex history, which I'd be happy to share another time, but it would take too long now. And you end up again with us today with a really strong separation of the world of Caesar, that is the world of business and government, the world of cutthroat action, money, getting ahead and power, and the world of God, the world of faith, peace, love, and joy, and righteousness in the Holy Spirit. The world that you live when you're out of these walls, kind of Monday through Saturday, and then the life that we get to live in here. And I think, again, we could go over history, but there's a strong, a sort of a, a cleaving in our lives, a separation. There's sort of these, these two worlds, and, and they have trouble meeting. Well, on the one hand, we might say, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, right, I have to live my life, and I kind of just have to sort of hold my moral nose and kind of go through the difficulties of life, and then I can go to church, or I can pray, and I can talk to God about things and, and be challenged or comforted, but, but what's the problem if, if my faith is sort of in this space or in my prayers, and then in real life, I just kind of have to live in this dog-eat-dog kind of world and just kind of survive to, to get ahead and to make ends meet? Well... The problem is that it's not what Jesus wants. <laughs> the problem is it's, it's not what Jesus wants. And Jesus today calls this, this group of people in his day called the Pharisees, as well as the people that were aligning themselves with Herod, and he calls them hypocrites. And what's going on is that their faith, their faith stopped at the walls of the temple. Okay? Their faith, they were so, listen to how holy and pious they were. Okay, This is how holy and pious they were. Well, you see, this coin that Jesus makes them look at today, well, as soon as, soon as he, he gets the coin out, there was at least one Pharisee who was smart who said, oh, he got us. Because what happens on the, on the coin is that it's not just an image of, like, George Washington or Abraham Lincoln, some dead president. Rather, it was the image of the living emperor, of the living Caesar. 
And what's more is that there was an inscription on that coin, and the inscription said, it said, uh, Kaiseros Kyrios, which means Caesar is Lord. Now, you don't have to be an, an expert in all of Jewish history and Jewish law to know that you were not supposed to worship statues of other gods where it said, this is the other god, right? That's an ultimate breaking of commandments, total taboo. But what do these super pious and holy religious people have in their pockets? Idols to a foreign god. It's a no-no. Jesus has got them. But see, they even know that this whole money was dirty, that this was a, an idol, that this was a wrong thing. But they wanted to keep their holy of holies precious. So what they did was they said this, okay, when you come to the temple and you want to bring a sacrifice to God for forgiveness or for thanksgiving, you cannot use that dirty, pagan, idolatrous money to buy your sacrifice. You need to have holy, pure church money to do this. So they literally set up outside of the temple in the courtyard, they set up money changers. And those money changers would literally take your Roman money and give you basically monopoly money to go buy your sacrifices. Now, as it turns out, the people who then, they, they sort of have this whole system going, it's a horizontal and vertical monopoly, and you know what they start doing then to the price of that exchange rate? Start lifting it up, and they basically begin to exhort the poor. They're extorting the poor. And so the whole point of the sacrificial system was that everybody, rich and poor, could offer some sort of sacrifice to the Lord. And now here they are, but we're pious and holy inside of our church. We don't want any of that bad money in here. And right outside the church, they're literally shafting the poor. And so Jesus says, you're a bunch of hypocrites. You're, you're pretending as if all you have to do is have your faith in the walls of the temple instead of actually in real life where you have to interact with real people. Okay, now some of you at this point are like, okay, good, they were religious hypocrites 2,000 years ago. They're bad. I don't have to worry about it. And, well, you weren't a religious hypocrite 2,000 years ago, so that's good. But... <laughs> Unfortunately, Jesus, we're, we're not, and I'm not going to let you off the hook that easy. So what Jesus says today isn't just about uh, Pharisees then, but it's really about what it means to be a disciple and what it means to live for God. For Jesus says that he wants us to render to God the things that are God's. And so then I said, well, wh what am I supposed to render to the Lord? This is a, what does it mean? So I looked in the whole New Testament and I only found one time where we are supposed to render something to the Lord. And the thing that we are obligated to render to the Lord that Jesus says we must render to God is that on judgment day, we will have to give an account of the deeds of our lives. This is what we will render to the Lord. We will render a telling of our deeds on judgment day. To put it another way, every one of us has a date with Jesus. We sit down with a bowl of popcorn and we just watch our lives. Just me and Jesus, you and Jesus. Now, if you're like me, that's, that's terrifying. And there's large chunks of my life that I really hope that there's like a fast forward or a skip button. Like, can we, I know, I know how this chapter goes. Let's, let's just skip it. Whew. And then there's other parts where I, I'd want to pause the story and I want to say, Jesus, 
before we watch, I just want to explain to you how complicated of a situation this was. And, I, and Jesus would sit there and say, well, tell me about it. And I'd say, but, but see, there were, there were so many factors involved here. There, there was, you know, I, I didn't want to hurt this person and this person, and, and I just would sort of be exasperated trying to justify myself. I remember once when I was working uh, out after college, I was working in the New York City area, and the firm I worked for had a lot of clients that we dealt with. And there was one client that I felt like I just couldn't work for. I just felt like in my core that, that what they were asking us to do, I just couldn't work for them and, and feel like I was living out m my values. Yet at the same time, I didn't want to go to my, my boss. My boss really liked this client. My boss thought this client was doing great stuff in the world. And I didn't want to go to my boss and say, hey, look, I know that you think this is morally great, but I'm, I don't. Right? How, how, did I, how can we do this in life? Again, we, we all face these situations Monday through Saturday where there's a lot of ambiguity. And it turns out that when it comes to judgment, what we do within these walls is going to be the smallest fraction of what we actually talk about with Jesus. Again, when Jesus is reviewing our lives and what we've done, what happens within these walls is the smallest fraction of, of what we're actually called to give a rendering of. And again, what we're called to give a rendering of are these really hard, complex situations in our lives where we often made mistakes. And so what are we going to do? How are we going to sort of now connect? How are we going to, to live in, in this world? Mm. Because what I think happens is that although I long for integrity, where my, my beliefs align totally with my actions, I discover again and again that I stumble with that. That what I, what I want to say, how I want to live like Jesus and how I do, there's, there's always a gap and there's always a chasm. So, so again, how can we bring Monday through Saturday and Sunday together? My sense is that what we can, though, do, even if we can't live always the way that Jesus lived, we can bring humility from Sunday into the rest of the week. And we can recognize that, yes, indeed, we're going to fall short, that life is more complicated than we can deal with, and it is often more than we can handle. One of the great miss. Um, one of the great quotes of Luther that's often kind of just taken out of context, but I think it, the, whole, the whole paragraph is, is, worth, is worth knowing. At one point, Luther's writing to a friend, and this one friend is obsessed with his sinfulness. And like, this one friend of his always is worried that he hasn't done enough, that God doesn't love him enough. And so finally Luther writes to the person, he writes sin boldly. He writes sin boldly. And of course this is taken out of context and made to look like Luther doesn't care about sin. But I want to actually share with you the sentence that Luther says before that, because that's the one I really want you to remember. And what Luther writes to his friend 500 years ago, I think it's, it's still words for us today, and he writes, God did not die for fictitious sinners. Let me say that again. God did not die for fictitious sinners. His point is, look, we're, to be a human means we're going to make mistakes. We're, we're going to stumble. We're, we're not going to live with the full integrity of Jesus every moment in every decision. But that's okay because God didn't die for fake people. God died for people, you and me. God died for real sinners. God died for real people. 
who make real mistakes in real life. And then Luther says afterwards, but believe more faithfully. Trust that our lives aren't going to be dictated by the mistakes that we make, but by God's grace working itself out in our lives. And that's the kind of faith and humility that allows us to connect and suddenly have a more integrated life where Sunday is meeting Monday. When we we go to this week and we know we're not going to do it perfectly, but we are living with humility and with faith, confident we might mess up, but that God is always faithful. I want to go back then to sort of politics because I began with this thing about our president and church and state. Well, in two weeks, there's elections. And this year, because it's not a presidential election, it's the temperature is a little bit cooler. But nonetheless, all elections matter. They have consequences, who wins and who loses. And in the school board, I think there's a lot of concern in our community about what's going to happen, who might get elected, people getting fired up about it, and rightfully so. And uh, so then with eagerness, I read this week in the newspaper, they had a section about all the candidates for school board. And I began to read the, the quotes by all the people. And what struck me is that uh, there were people who I'm, I'm not going to vote for, but when I read what they wrote, I realized that they're humans and that they have children, they have grandchildren, they care about this community, and even though I might disagree profoundly with what they want in the school district, just recognizing like, oh, they're not as terrible as we imagine them to be. And we're probably not as virtuous as we claim ourselves to be. Again, I think when it comes to how we render under Caesar and render under God, I think there's a, a call to, to enter life, the political, the, all the business arena, our daily lives with a great deal of humility. For it turns out that at the end when we're reviewing our lives, it's going to be very, very, if any, few elections where the Lord's going to look at us and say, well, if you had voted differently, that would have all turned out differently. But what we will be responsible is for how we treated the 48% that didn't get on the side that we voted for. We'll be held accountable again for how we treated all the other people. And so if we can have that, though, humility and faith, then I think that time when, on Judgment Day when we're with Jesus, it, it becomes something different. Because if we already know going in when we review this whole thing that I'm going to fall terribly short of what I was supposed to do, yet God is in the end going to forgive me because of Jesus, then I can watch my life and I can watch it a little bit differently. And I actually get excited to watch it now. Because what's going to happen is that just like we realize that the world of Caesar finally belongs to, to the world of God, in the same way, when we begin to watch our story and have to give that accounting, we're going to realize that our story is really the story of Jesus Christ. And that what's going to happen is that watching our story, we'll finally get to see all of those pieces where God was intervening, where God was forgiving us when we didn't deserve it, where God was giving us another chance, where God was giving us with love, and God was again showing forth God's mercy. Because it, it turns out that there is one other thing we're supposed to render to the Lord. And this isn't in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, there's one thing we are supposed to render to the Lord. As, this, as it says, what shall I render to the Lord for all your benefits to me? I will offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. 
For finally what we're called to do in the rendering is to give a sacrifice of thanksgiving for all that Jesus Christ has done as finally our confession of our sin gives way to simply proclamation and thanksgiving of all that Jesus Christ has done for us. Amen.